Welcome to Northwest by Night, Tales of the West Coast. Hi, it's Kim. Thanks for joining me. Today we head north to follow a story of starvation, heartache, horror, and the toughest little cat you'll ever meet in all of Canadian history. In 1884, a brigantine was built at Matthew Turner's shipyard in Benicia, California. She was named Carluck, the Aleut word for fish. She was 129 feet long, empowered by both sail and a 140 horsepower auxiliary coal fire compound steam engine. Now that sounds and looks strong, but her engine from the very beginning was never powerful. It was described by her engineer as a coffee pot of an engine, never intended to run more than two days at a time. In 1892, after a few years of fishing, Carlick was converted for use as a whaler. Her sides were sheathed with two inches of Australian ironwood, which is dense and exceptionally hard and highly resistant to termites. And with her armor in place, she completed 14 whaling trips, the last one in 1911. Then, In 1913, Carlick was purchased by a man named Wilhelmer Stephenson for the bargain price of $10,000. He had high hopes for the vessel, but his ambitions and expectations were more than she could bear. She looked strong, but she was about to be tested through the ferocious onslaught of an Arctic winter, and that was a trial she wouldn't survive. So Wilhelmer Stephenson was a Canadian explorer and ethnologist, born to Icelandic parents in Gimli, Manitoba in 1879, and he was a graduate of Harvard. Driven and outgoing, he'd done archaeological research in Iceland in 1904 and 1905, and then he'd lived with the Inuit of the Mackenzie Delta during the winter of 1906 and 1907. In 1908, Stephenson hired the Inuk guide Nekutsiak, And for the next four years, they undertook an ethnological survey of the central Arctic coasts of the shores of North America, under the auspices of the American Museum of Natural History. When Stephenson returned home, he immediately began planning another expedition to the high Arctic. He approached the National Geographic Society and the American Museum of Natural History for financial backing, but he also wanted to explore the Beaufort Sea and discover any new islands on that particular blank part of the map. At the time, the area wasn't well documented, and Stephenson wanted to change that. But for that, he needed more money. <laughs> so he approached the Canadian government. In the early part of the 20th century, Canada, Norway, and the United States were all seeking claims of sovereignty over the high Arctic. The Canadian government feared that an American financed expedition would give the U.S. a legal claim to any new lands discovered in the Beaufort Sea. So Robert Borden, the Canadian Prime Minister, Met Stephenson in Ottawa in February of 1913. Borden's government was hopeful that the expedition would strengthen Canada's claim over the Arctic islands, so the government offered to assume all financial responsibility for the entire three year expedition. The American sponsors, probably none too happy, agreed to withdraw, but the National Geographic Society placed a condition. 
If Stephenson failed to depart by June of 1913, the Society would reclaim its rights to the expedition, and thereby nullifying the Canadian deal and losing Stephenson his additional funding. It was a narrow deadline. It only gave Stephenson a few months to prepare. He needed to hurry, to hire crew, organize research, gather supplies, and buy ships. Stephenson decided that the expedition would best use three ships, the Mary Sachs, the Alaska, and Carlock. Stephenson's plan was to rendezvous all three ships at an old whaling station at Herschel Island, off the Canadian Arctic coast, and here the expedition would divide up equipment and supplies. It was also on Herschel Island that Stephenson would divide the group into two parties, a northern party to search for new islands, and a southern party to carry out anthropological surveys. The expedition's scientific team included representatives from Denmark, France, Norway, the U.S., and all over the British Empire. They were distinguished men in their fields, but most of them had no experience whatsoever in polar exploration. Only Alistair Forbes McKay, the expedition's medical officer, and James Murray, the oceanographer, had previous experience. They'd both been on Sir Ernest Shackleton's Nimrod expedition to Antarctica in 1907-1909. Other scientists included William Laird McKinley, a young science teacher from Glasgow, and Bjorn Mammon, who was a skiing champion from Norway. He'd act as the expedition's forester, even though he had absolutely no scientific background whatsoever. Now, 36-year-old Robert Bartlett had already captained a ship to within 150 miles of the North Pole, so he was fairly experienced in polar navigation. And he'd just returned to Brigus, Newfoundland, from the spring seal hunt, when he received a telegram from Stephenson that Bartlett had been hired as the captain of Carlock. So he rushed west to British Columbia to join the expedition. Now this meant he didn't have time to select a crew, so he hurriedly picked sailors from around the dockyards in Victoria, British Columbia, before setting sail. Now they weren't exactly the cream of the crop. McKinley wrote that one crew member was a drug addict, one suffered from venereal disease, And, despite alcohol being forbidden on board, some of the crew had smuggled liquor onto the ships. They also brought a little black cat on board, which they named Nigurarak. I'm hoping I say that right. (laughs) Nigurarak. On June 17th, Carlock left port in Victoria, British Columbia, to set sail north. But in the weeks leading up to their departure, Stephenson had been mostly absent, and he'd only revealed a few details about his plans to the team. Expedition members grew concerned that in their hurry to meet the National Geographic Society's deadline, they'd sacrificed the quality of their food, clothing, and equipment. But Stephenson dismissed their concerns, saying that members of the expedition team were being impertinent and disloyal. Disputes began, too, over the chain of command— The Canadian Geological Survey had provided four scientists to the expedition, and it wanted those men to report directly to the agency, rather than to Stephenson, which Stephenson didn't like much at all. Stephenson had also taken claim to the publication rights of all private expedition journals, and the leader of the Southern Party, a zoologist by the name of Rudolf Anderson, threatened to resign if he wasn't able to take credit for his own work. The expedition left in such disarray, such a hurry, that men and equipment were loaded onto the wrong ships. And from the very beginning, Bartlett had reservations about Carlick's seaworthiness. 
He recognized that Carlock hadn't been built to withstand the pressures of ice on her hull, nor did she have an engine strong enough to punch through sea ice. But immediately there were other more pressing concerns. The engine needed constant attention, and the steering gear was unreliable at best. By the time they reached Nome, Alaska, the men were very unhappy with the whole situation. They demanded a meeting with Stephenson to clarify plans and to sort out their equipment. And some were offended by Stephenson's dismissive attitude. But even though they were alarmed and they threatened to quit, none of them did. At Port Clarence, north of Nome, they took 28 dogs on board before continuing towards their rendezvous point on Herschel Island. On July 28th, the ships crossed the Arctic Circle, and on July 31st, Carlick reached Point Hope, where two Inuit hunters known as Jerry and Jimmy joined them. On August 1st, they spotted permanent ice pack, but despite several attempts, they were unable to breach the ice. The next day, though, they tried again, and Carlick was able to thrust into the ice. But any sense of accomplishment was soon lost. Carlock became trapped and she drifted eastward for three days before reaching open water again. While the Carlock was stuck, Stephenson traveled over the ice to Point Barrow and brought back a trapper, Jack Hadley, who became the ship's carpenter. Soon after that, at Cape Smythe, two more Inuit hunters, Karaluk and Kataktavik, joined the expedition. They also brought with them Karaluk's family, his wife Kiruk, who would be a seamstress, and their two daughters, Quagaluk, also known as Helen, and Mugpie. Quagaluk was eight, and Mugpie was only three years old. Bartlett grew more and more anxious about the ice in the area. The brass plates that protect the ship's bow had already been damaged, so he tried to follow channels of open water. And over the next few days, Carlick struggled to make headway as Bartlett took the ship away from the coast. By August 13th, Bartlett calculated their position as 235 miles east of Point Barrow, with a similar distance to travel to get to their rendezvous point at Herschel Island. But despite his best efforts, Carlick would go no farther east. The ship became firmly stuck. Trapped in the shifting ice, she began to move slowly westward. And by September 10th, they abandoned any hope of reaching Herschel Island in time to meet the Mary Sachs and the Alaska. Carlock and all on board would have to winter where she was. After about a week, running out of fresh meat and realizing that they might be stuck for a while, Stephenson announced that he and a small hunting party would hike towards land and search for game. On September 19th, he took Jimmy and Jerry... He took the expedition secretary, Bert O'Connell, the photographer, George Wilkins, and the anthropologist, Diamond Jenis. And he expected that their little party would be gone for around 10 days. Stephenson instructed Bartlett that if the ship started moving again, he was to send a party ashore and construct beacons with information about the direction that they were heading. But a blizzard struck the ship on September 23rd, and the ice flow in which Carlick was trapped began to drift. She was soon moving between 30 and 60 miles a day, but westward, away from Stephenson's party, who Bartlett soon realized would never find their way back to the ship.
The snow, the fog, the poor weather, all conspired to make it impossible for Bartlett to calculate where they'd gone. But as they began to head north and away from land, he started to fear that the ship would be crushed by the increasingly thick ice. He ordered supplies and equipment to be moved off the ship. This would help to lighten Karlik, but it also meant they could escape quickly should she break up into pieces and sink. The crew hunted for seals to supplement their food supplies, and by mid-November, their drift shifted southwest towards Siberia. Now, even in these bleak conditions, they decided to celebrate Christmas with presents, decorations, and a banquet. But their merriment was very short-lived. By New Year's Day, the ice began to buckle into pressure ridges, cracking and drumming with loud, ominous noises. On January 10th, 1914, early in the morning, a tremor shook the whole ship. Bartlett gave orders to remove any snow from the decks, hoping that by lightening the boat she'd raise up above the crushing ice. But he also ordered all hands to dress warmly and prepare for the worst. At 6.45 that night, a harsh, grating roar erupted from under their feet. Ice had punctured the hull, and water was rushing in through a huge crack. Bartlett gave the order to abandon ship. Through driving snow and darkness, the crew hurried to move more rations and supplies, adding to those already on the ice, and Bartlett remained on board for Carlock's last moments. He put Chopin's funeral march on the ship's Victrola and let the music echo out across the barren ice as he stepped off the ship, joining the others. Within minutes, crushed and twisted, the planks of her deck snapping and her ironwood armor cracking, Carlick disappeared through a hole, swallowed up by the sea. And left stranded on the ice were 22 men, one woman, two children, 16 dogs, and Nigerarak the cat. They called it Shipwreck Camp, and it was comprised of a few small shelters, built of canvas or packing crates. In Carlick's last minutes, they managed to save the stove from the ship, and there was plenty to eat, so Bartlett was hopeful that they'd be able to last a while on the ice. But he knew that eventually they'd need to strike out for Rangel Island, which is located north of Siberia. He thought it made the most sense to wait for the longer days of February and use the last week of January to slowly gather their strength and prepare their gear. But McKay and Murray, who'd both been on Shackleton's Antarctica expedition, and the anthropologist Henri Bouchat, they were determined to leave as soon as possible, and they made it clear that they were dissatisfied with the idea of waiting. McKinley and Mammon persuaded Bartlett to send a small, fast-moving advance group to Rangel Island to prepare a camp. Bartlett relented, and he let a party of four leave on January 21st. They were led by Carlick's first officer, Alexander Sandy Anderson, and included crew members Charles Barker, John Brady, and Edmund Golightly, plus Bjorn Mammon, who would act as a scout. They were given instructions to set up a camp near Berry Point on the north shore of Rangel Island. On February 4th, Mammon returned to shipwreck camp with an injured knee. He'd left the group just short of land, but he figured it was probably Harold Island, and not Rangel, that they'd reached. 
Bartlett decided to send a team to establish the exact location of the island that the Anderson party had approached, and to determine if Anderson's group had actually landed there. The ship's steward Ernest Chaff, along with Kataktovic and Kuruluk, came within two miles of Harold Island, but they couldn't reach the island because of a channel of open water. They looked through binoculars for ages for any sign of the missing party, but they saw nothing, and when they returned to shipwreck camp, Chafe concluded that Anderson and company had not reached the island. Now, meanwhile, on February 4th, McKay, Murray, and Beauchat, along with crewman Stanley Morris, announced they were leaving the next day. They wanted to strike out for land, too, so Bartlett gave them a sled, a tent, six gallons of oil, a rifle, ammunition, and enough food to last for 50 days. Now, when Chafe and the Inuit hunters were returning from their observation of Harold Island a few days later, they crossed paths with McKay's group, and they found them struggling to travel across the ice. McKay's party had lost some of their provisions and clothing, and they'd even discarded some of their heavier equipment, and Beauchat, delirious, was suffering from hypothermia. Now, Chaff offered assistance and tried to entice them back to shipwreck camp, but they wouldn't go. They continued to struggle on their way. They were never seen from again. The only hint of their fate was Morris's scarf, later found buried in an ice floe. As for Anderson's party, they disappeared too, and their fate was a mystery until 1924, when the American vessel SS Herman landed on Harold Island. The crew discovered an old scattered camp on the northwest side. There they found boxes of ammunition, matches, hunting knives, a silver watch, snow goggles, plenty of food, and under a piece of frozen canvas tent, the skeletal remains of four men. The remaining group at Shipwreck Camp now consisted of 17 individuals. There was Bartlett, engineers John Monroe and Robert Williamson, seamen Hugh Williams and Fred Morer, fireman George Bretty, cook Robert Templeton, the trapper John Hadley, and Henri Schiff, along with scientist McKinley, Mammon, and geologist George Malik, plus Karolik's family of four and Kataktovic. There was also, for better or worse, Nagayarak the cat. Despite the harsh conditions and hardship, Mugpi, the three-year-old daughter of Karolik, was a cheerful and happy little girl, and her antics became a source of joy and distraction for the whole group. At one point, her father, in despair over their situation, wondered aloud if they were going to live out the year. Mugpi replied that they were alive now, so they were going to keep on living. The weather was better. The days were growing longer. And when February came, Bartlett decided it was time to strike out for land. At first, he sent small groups out to blaze a trail and to lay down supply depots, because he knew that most of the party were inexperienced with traveling over ice, and it was going to be a demanding, perilous journey. When at last they were ready to leave shipwreck camp for good, Bartlett divided the survivors into four teams. The first two teams left on February 19th, and Bartlett led the last two groups on February 24th. Travel was slow and strenuous. The surface of the ice was broken, sharp, and thrust upwards into fierce peaks. And to make matters worse, storms had wiped away sections of the blazed trail. Carrick carried Mugpie on her back, 
while Quagaluk helped her father with the sleds. On February 28th, their progress was stopped by a series of high ridges, some reaching as high as a hundred feet straight upwards, and stretching east and west as far as they could see. The men began slowly chopping their way through the ridges. Now three turned back to shipwreck camp to pick up a few more supplies, but when they returned to the main party a week later, the group had only advanced three miles. But those were the worst three miles. And after they crossed the last of the ridges, the ice grew smooth again and much easier to cross. And finally exhausted, they reached the northern shore of Wrangell Island by March 12th. Now, Wrangell Island is situated between the Chukchi Sea and the East Siberian Sea. It's 140 kilometers from the mainland, oval-shaped, only about 125 kilometers wide, and it consists of a southern coastal plain, a central belt of low mountains, and then a northern coastal plain. The highest point is Sovetskaya Mountain, 1,096 meters above sea level, with each end of the east-west mountain range terminating as sea cliffs. Now on solid land, Bartlett took stock of their situation. Three men were injured, many were suffering from frostbite and weak from the journey through the ridges. He'd originally thought that they could rest at Rangel before continuing on to the mainland, but he realized that the group would never make it. He ordered them to set up camps around the island, most likely to give the bickering men some space, and then he and Kataktivik continued on alone. By April 4th, They reached the Siberian coast, and soon after they found a small village where they were given food and shelter by the local Chukchi people. Then they struck out southward again, moving down the coast from village to village through blizzards and bitterly cold temperatures, sometimes as low as minus 50 degrees. On April 24th, they reached Emma Town, also called Keniskan, a small trading station on the Cape Desnev Peninsula. It had taken the two men 37 days to travel 700 miles. In Keniskin, Bartlett met a man named Mr. Karaif. I think that's how it's pronounced. It's very oddly spelled. Now, Mr. Karaif had been a graduate of college in Vladivostok, and he spoke English. He told Bartlett that the ice in the Bering Strait was now breaking up, so there was no way to take a sled back across it. But nor could they take a boat either not until later in the season when all the icebergs were gone. So too dangerous to use either a boat or a sled to get back to the North American side, Bartlett considered heading south to the larger town of Anadir to send a wireless message to Ottawa. Mr. Kareif felt that that wasn't a good idea either. The melting rivers would make the roads impassable. And besides, there was no guarantee that the wireless would be working when they got there. So Mr. Kareif introduced Bartlett to the Russian supervisor of northeastern Siberia, a distinguished gentleman named Baron Kleist, who offered to take Bartlett to Emma Harbour, which was a larger centre located about a week away by dog sled. Here he'd be able to find a larger ship that could take him back to Alaska. So Bartlett said goodbye to Kataktivik, and on May 10th, he set off with the Baron. Six days later, they reached Emma Harbour, and five days after that, Bartlett boarded a whaler and journeyed back to Nome. Now, ice prevented him from landing there, so he continued on to St. Michael, where he finally was able to send a message to Ottawa. And as soon as he told them of Karlik's fate, he began searching for a rescue vessel to save the stranded party.
Back on Wrangell Island, things were not going well. The survivors had set up little individual camps around the island, just like Bartlett had suggested. But almost as soon as he left, dissension began to seep through the group. Food was growing scarce. And as hunger set in, people began to accuse each other of hoarding supplies. McKinley wrote, quote, The misery and desperation of our situation multiplied every weakness, every quirk of personality, every flaw in character, a thousandfold. Schaff's feet had become gangrenous after severe frostbite, so Williamson removed his toes with improvised tools. Malik's frostbitten feet refused to heal, and Mammon's dislocated knee gave him constant pain. To make matters worse, a strange sickness began to affect the members of the party. Their legs swelled, and they grew just too exhausted to move. When Malik died on May 17th, Mammon was too ill to bury him, so the body lay in their tent for days until McKinley was able to come and give help. Ten days later, Mammon also died of the same mystery disease. It was later diagnosed as a type of nephritis, inflamed kidneys, caused by eating faulty pemmican. Now, pemmican is made by drying meat, usually bison, but it can also be venison, beef, moose, or caribou. And then that dried meat is pounded into a powder. Then it's, that powder is mixed with an equal amount of melted fat, and sometimes berries are added. It's high-protein, high-fat food. It's so useful for traveling. But the pemmican made for Stephenson's expedition didn't contain enough fat, so they were consuming too much protein for their bodies to process. Because the human body has no mechanism for storing protein like it does for fat, this leads to excess protein in the blood, and eventually to kidney damage. Most likely, because they were so hurried to gather their supplies at the beginning of the expedition, they ended up with a terribly, terribly faulty product. Wrangell is the summer breeding ground for birds like snow geese and terns, and in early June, birds began to appear. These provided a much-needed source of food, both meat and eggs, but they also became a new catalyst for bickering, conflicts, and arguments. Nasty accusations of hoarding percolated through the group, and Williamson grew suspicious that Breddy and Schaff were thieving. On June 25th, a gunshot blasted through the silent Arctic air, and Breddy was found dead in his tent. It may have been an accident while cleaning his gun, or he may have been driven to suicide. But the trapper Hadley claimed it was murder. He suspected Williamson. But Williamson proclaimed his innocence and said that Hadley's suspicions were all hallucinations and absolutely untrue. The truth was never determined. But later, items stolen from McKinley were soon found in Bradley's camp. All in all, they were miserable, hungry and hopeless. The survivors raised a Canadian flag on Dominion Day to bring a little bit of celebration to their situation, but it did no good. By August, with no hint of rescue, the ragged, weary, half-starved party began to prepare for another ferocious Arctic winter. But on the morning of September 7th, a ship's whistle rang out across the island. Mugpie was the first to see the King and Wing, an American-registered schooner, a quarter of a mile offshore. On board was Bert McConnell, Stephenson's secretary, who had been alerted to the survivor's location by Bartlett in Nome. 
By that afternoon, all 14 survivors were on board, as well as the cat. While Bartlett was criticized by an admiralty commission for taking Carlick into the ice in the first place and allowing McKay's party to leave, he was publicly hailed as a hero and honored for outstanding bravery by the Royal Geographical Society. Stephenson, however, was privately critical of Bartlett, and Bartlett was just as unimpressed with Stephenson. After leaving the Carlick group, Stephenson and his group of hunters were able to reach land but when they discovered the ship was gone, he continued back along the Arctic coast. In his opinion, the crew of Carlick were in no grave danger. They had provisions for five years, and they were well-equipped to make for land should they need to abandon ship. There was nothing else he could do for them, and he was driven to complete his work. Within a few months, he'd purchased the schooner North Star, gathered new supplies and a new crew, and continued exploring. By March 1914, around the same time that the survivors were reaching Wrangell Island, Stephenson visited the Southern Party, which was excavating an old Inuit settlement on Barter Island. He seemed indifferent to the plight of his crew, and believing the discovery of new land was more important than scientific research, Stephenson left with three sleds to head north. He continued his search for new land, and when he returned in 1918, he claimed to have discovered three islands. He was honored by the National Geographic Society and was given the presidency of the Explorers Club in New York. But in Canada, his reception wasn't so warm. The expedition had been costly, both in money and in human lives. Kuraluk, Kuruk, and their two daughters, Kwaigaluk and Mugpi, returned to their home at Point Barrow. Mugpi, who became known as Ruth, was the last survivor of the Karluk voyage. She died in 2008 at the age of 97, having lived a full life as a community leader, a homemaker, a mother, and a grandmother. She came through the ordeal with only a single injury. One day, after chasing the cat, Nagayarak had lashed out at the little girl and left her with a scratch on her chin. As for Nagayarak, she was taken by crew member Fred Moore when he returned to home in New Philadelphia, Ohio. She lived to a ripe old age and had many, many, many litters of kittens, all black, but with feet and bibs as white as the Arctic snow. Northwest by Night is a production of Fox and Bee Studio. Visit us at northwestbynight.com or follow us on Instagram at northwestbynight or on Twitter at northwestbynight, spelled N-I-T-E. Today we're ending with the song Alert Bay by Sean Pickett, who also does all our sound production too. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.